0: Yalla, yalla. Welcome to Cup of Taboo with me, Tyler. Whoop, whoop. Crowd goes wild. This is the very first episode of my very first podcast. The one, hopefully not the only, number one. Number one. Anyway, (laughs) enough chit-chat. Grab a cup of coffee or tea. Or wine or whiskey whatever I don't judge and get ready for some interesting information which will be served in your cup of taboo <laughs> it's lame but we're keeping it yes we are also this might be a two-parter but let's see how it goes today I will be talking about the order of the solar temple that's right your girl chose a cult to cover in the first episode what what I I'm just saying if you know me you wouldn't expect anything less <laughs> The Order of the Solar Temple also known as the OTS in French it is Ordre du Temple solaire I'm so sorry my French words don't work with my mouth it's an accent I've never really been good at wee oui, wee oui. Palais du Francais. No, none of that. So, I'm so sorry if I butcher a bunch of words in this, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to any French people out there. It's just, I'm not good at it. Anyway, the Order of the Solar Temple was also known as the OTS. This was a cult, however, we will call it a group, that was active in the 1980s and the 1990s. I want to quickly describe what a cult is which is described by Infosect or InfoCult. It is described as a highly manipulative group that exploits its members and can cause psychological, financial and physical harm. It dictates in an absolute manner the behaviors, thoughts and emotions of its followers. Manipulation techniques are used to transform the new recruit into a loyal, obedient and subservient member. Cults claim special status for themselves or their leaders that usually sets them in opposition to mainline society and or their family members. Cults conceal their real nature and goals from prospective members by adopting deceptive behaviours in order to attract new recruits. The Order of the Solar Temple was started in 1984 by two men. They were Luc Jouret and Joseph de Mumbro. Joseph de Mumbro was born in 1924 in the south of France. He was a businessman, a jeweler to be specific, and he was a self-proclaimed hypnotist. Yep, that's right, you heard me. He said that when he was younger, he used to sit and knit with his mother, and he learned her rhythm, and through that, he learned the art of hypnosis. I don't know how true... I mean, I don't know how good he was, but that's what he said. He looked like he was part of the mafia kind of i mean all the photos of him are when he's old and just gross but he's got that face you know that mafia face i'm gonna beat you up you talking to me kind of face he was obsessed with being part of a group his whole life was spent in different religious or cultural groups when i say that i mean you'll you'll see now when i explain which ones he was part of like Five, six, maybe even seven, but you kind of wonder if it speaks to something missing in him. Loneliness, sadness, I don't know. You'll see. In 1956, he joined a group called the Ancient and Mystical Order of the Rosicrucians, Crucius, or Amorc. A-M-O-R-C. In the 60s, he became the leader of Amorc in France and he remained until 1969. In the 70s, he gave up the Jewelin and the Businessin, and became a full-time lecturer in the New Age movement. In 1973, he founded a center for preparation of the New Age in France. Three years later, in 1976, he established a communal group called La Pyramide, which was focused on Egyptology, which he was obsessed with. When I say obsessed, I mean obsessed. He loved the whole egypt and egyptology the symbology symbols and all that kind of stuff it was it was his vibe around this time he was arrested for pretending to be a psychologist and passing bad checks i don't know how somebody pretends to be a psychologist but maybe he was using his hypnotism (laughs) and tricking people that way after he was arrested it wasn't for a long time la pyramid farmhouse caught fire in 1979 insurance fraud he obviously wasn't scared of committing fraud so that's that's my theory and i'm sticking to it he then started a group called the golden way foundation in geneva switzerland after the burning of la pyramid so you see what i'm saying that's that's a lot of groups to be part of in in one lifetime it's 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 kind of like he's hopping around looking for looking for the best thing. He he doesn't seem to really fit maybe. Maybe he was looking for a place where he could control people better. But it could also speak to an inner sadness, I guess. But I don't feel sorry for him. You shouldn't feel sorry for him. I'm going to quickly pause on old Joey and explain Luc Jure. He was born in Kikwit, Belgian Congo in 1947. Now, okay, I never took history, I don't know anything about any of this stuff. <laughs> so I didn't even know that the Congo was Belgian at any point in history. Like, to me, the Congo is African. <laughs> I do The more you know. He got his degree in medicine in 1974 at the Free University of Brussels, so he wasn't a dumb man. He worked as a conventional medical practitioner for a few years And then he found homeopathy in India and he fell in love with it. He was obsessed with it. He just couldn't get enough of it. He started lecturing on it and he became a very popular lecturer on homeopathic and paranormal things. He was extremely likable and magnetic. He was a great speaker that drew people in and he managed to actually get really lots of people to come to his talks. Apparently there was over 700 people at one of them and he just really knew how to get you a quote from an ex-member goes as follows quote you start listening and by god you know you just all of a sudden feel so attracted to what he is saying you talk about the universe and how man is made of four ingredients and how the stars are made of the same four ingredients then you go to egypt and egyptology And then somewhere along the lines comes along the possibility of extraterrestrials, and it goes on and on like that. But the more you hear, the less you understand, and the more you want to know. You slowly get caught up in a web." In the early 1980s, Di asked Giray to lecture at the Golden Way Foundation, the group that he started in Geneva, his most recent one. There, the two realized that they had a lot in common. They were like, Brothers, yance. Mumbro invited Jure to join him at another group called the Renewed Order of the Temple in 1981. Yep, he was part of another group, that one. The Renewed Order of the Temple. So Jure went along with him, and them and the leader of that group at the time, I think his surname was Oregas. Yes, his surname was Oregas. They were apparently like the three musketeers, thickest thieves, besties shortly after joining jure was ordained as a priest and then he became the grand master of the renewed order of the temple in 1983 so he moved up really quickly and that sort of just speaks to his ability to i don't know i don't want to say sweet talk people or but he was really good at capturing people there was a schism which to me is one of the weirdest words but I love it, which forced Jiray out, but half of the membership decided to follow him. Dimambro saw half the membership was like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm with Jiray. And he went to Jiray and they combined their forces and their little cult baby, the Order of the Solar Temple, was born. Happy birthday to you. The OTS was a Neo-Templar group, which had strong Templar beliefs. Now, let me quickly explain The history of the templars for those of you who are like me and you only know the knights templar from assassin's creed and da vinci's code because (laughs) it's the only important places to find out about these things i guess the knights templar were a large organization of devout christians during the medieval era who protected european travelers visiting the site of the holy land as well as carrying out military operations so basically In the medieval era, after Christian armies captured Jerusalem from Muslim control, this was in 1099, during the Crusades, groups of pilgrims from across Western Europe wanted to visit the Holy Land, but many were robbed and killed as they crossed through the Muslim-controlled territories, which is why the Knights Templar became a thing. In around 1118, a French knight named Hugh de Pire created a military order called the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon. Or the Knights Templar. In 1129, the group received formal endorsement from the Catholic Church, and in 1139, Pope Innocent II <laughs> issued a papal bull. Also, another cool word, it's just papal bull. Sounds a little bit dirty. <laughs> Pope Innocent II issued a papal bull that allowed the Knights Templar special rights. They were exempt from paying taxes, and they were held to no one's authority. Besides the Pope himself now the Knights Templar were said to be incredibly religious and They were also apparently very good fighters But they also managed to set up a very prosperous network of banks and they gained an enormous financial influence This banking system that they made allowed the religious pilgrims to deposit their funds in their home countries and then withdraw those funds in the Holy Land Which I mean is really cool if you think about it Like, this was almost a thousand years ago, and they managed to create, not create, they managed to do banking. They were some of the earliest known banks in the world, which to me is just, it's pretty cool. That's, that's a pretty cool flex, if you will. I'm so old. The Knights Templar had some really weird rules. They weren't allowed to wear pointy shoes. They weren't allowed to kiss their mothers. They had to wear their white habits with simple red crosses, and the members swore an oath of poverty, chastity, and obedience, which meant no drinking, gambling, or swearing. At the height of their influence, they had a huge fleet of ships, they owned the Mediterranean island of Cyprus, and they served as the primary lending institution and bank for European monarchs and nobles. Now, it started going a little bit awry in the late 12th century, the Muslim armies retook Jerusalem and turned the tide of the crusades. By 1303, the Knights Templar had lost its foothold in the Muslim world and they had to flee to Paris. There, for some reason, King Philip IV resolved to bring the Knights Templar down. And on Friday, October 13th, Friday the 13th, 1307, almost all of the known Templars were arrested. They were tortured until they confessed to false charges including homosexuality, heresy, financial corruption, devil worship, fraud, and more. Some of the knights refused and rather committed suicide than admitting to these things, but hundreds broke down and admitted to defiling the cross. Later, 54 knights recanted their earlier confessions, and on the 12th of May, 1310, the 54 were burnt alive at the stake. This is important, for later it does play into one of the theories of what happened with the order of the solar temple but going back to the order of the solar temple the stars of the show Luc jure in his lectures would pick out anyone who was interested in certain topics and he would ask them to join his groups he had three groups the amenta group the arcadia group and i can't remember the other one but they were three groups which were pretty much feeders into the OTS. He would look out for the wealthiest, most prominent people, and he would latch on to them. So, for example, Camille Pillet, who was one of the directors of Piaget Watches, he attended a talk, and he was invited to one of the groups and ultimately invited to the OTS. They, The bigwigs and the leaders latched on to him, and they were like, yes, you are important. You are the one that we need. They told him that he was the reincarnation of Joseph of Arimathea. I'm sorry if I said that wrong too. They wanted him because of his wealth, and apparently they awarded him all his capes in one go instead of him going through the normal initiation process. Apparently in the group you had to go through a bunch of different initiations and you had to receive different capes, which each meant a different thing, but not him. He had the money, You know, they say that money can't get you places, it gets you everywhere. I digress. He paid all his contributions for one year at once. That's probably one of the reasons that they got him. They were like, hey, you got money, pay us, pay them dollar bills. The members of the OTS were all politicians, business people, police people, other prominent members of society. This was not a place for the down and out. It was for the fancy, the important, the rich And membership peaked in 1989, with 442 members. Now that might not sound like a lot, but, I mean, that's a fair amount of people. So, only the inner members really learned the true secrets that the Solar Temple had to offer. It was all a matter of status and class. But here is a clip of an ex-member, Herman Delorme, speaking about what it was like being part of the Solar Temple enjoy
1: you become disengaged and disconnected from everything that surrounds you and there's only one key to your life's purpose or your life's objective and that's in the solar temple that's where it's at that's where it's going on and nothing else really matters it flatters your ego to be part of a group that designs itself as an elite that are the chosen ones, uh, how can you not feel good about it? I actually believed that I was superior to most other people on this planet, uh, that I had been chosen. And I would start considering other people as being less than what I was, not aware, not awake, uh, having no idea of what life was really all about, So there was no other option for me than to stay within the group, because therefore that's where my salvation was.
0: Thank you, Herman. (laughs) Now, not much is really known about the beliefs and rituals of the OTS because of the secrecy, but from a mixture of accounts, there were a mixture of New Age and Christianity, mixed with a little bit of astrology and Templar beliefs. The rudimentary ideas and history of the OTS were relatively known, but it was taught that a blue star appearing some 26,000 years ago, Sirius, was the home of a number of ascended masters. They were also known as the Great White Brotherhood. It sounds a little bit racist, but anyway... They came to earth and inhabited a subterranean spiritual realm known as agatha these masters are essentially souls but can occasionally manifest themselves in corporeal form uh, another cool word yay words in the underground chambers of the solar temple privileged members could be granted the opportunity to witness these epiphanies like the masters humans are inherently souls rather than bodies and the bodies they possess are temporary abodes on death the soul moves on from one corporeal manifestation to another. Thus, reincarnation was one of the key teachings at OTS, a process to which ascended masters and humans alike were subject. They had an initiation ritual that you can find a video of online. They blurred the faces themselves so that they could maintain their shroud of mystery. And it's got some really weird like, music. It's like...
1: Oh, ah.
0: And then at the end of it, there's like a weird like fire crackling and it fades out. (laughs) Shame, it's quite... quite. Anyway, in the video, you can see two people in their white coats leading a man who's wearing a business suit into a room full of other people wearing their cloaks. Now, this is where you see the different cloaks. There's some in some really sketchy looking red ones. They almost look a little bit KKK vibe, but red. Mm. They take a cape and they place it over this man's shoulders and then he he takes the knee in front of a priest and puts his hands on the altar next to a bible being held open by a sword and a rose then the priest dubs the man with his sword kind of like a queen knighting a knight and then after the ceremony is done the members file out of the room in a two-by-two fashion into a long corridor there was a teeny tiny room behind a mirrored door where only a few members could fit inside at a time and during a ceremony only three or four would be admitted to this inner sanctum leaving the others to wait outside sometimes they would make them wait outside for hours now the chosen few who were allowed to go into the room got to see and hear the ascended masters as well as other illusions that Mumbro chose to show them or you know trick them with the members would leave the room and be told not to tell anyone what it was that they had seen this was another way for De Mumbra to manipulate his followers into sticking around. The people that had not yet been in waited eagerly for their chance to find out the juicy, juicy secrets that the room had to offer. According to some ex-member accounts, De Mumbra would speak of the Holy Grail and magically a glowing grail would appear and he would claim that the members were certain reincarnations, which is why they were seeing these specific things. But in actuality, DeMumbro had... A member, Antonio Dutoy, set up special effects and lighting tricks so that he could fool the members into seeing and believing all the different stories he was telling. So he was pretty much just gaslighting them them the whole way. Like, hey, you're important. Look at this shiny thing. Give us money. Antonio Dutoy will be important for later. So remember that name. I will bring it up. So, you know, yeah, remember it or don't, it's, it's your thing. A lot of the OTS rules and practices were pretty much based on the notion of purity. So their goal was to create nine cosmic children. Now a cosmic child, you might ask, what is that? It is a child born of a cosmic coupling. And a cosmic coupling is when two destined souls were united by the Ascended Masters. In other words, by Demumbro. Now... These nine cosmic children, they would usher in the new age. And that was the whole thing about their, their thing. They wanted the new age to be ushered in. Joseph de Mumbro was married to a lady named Jocelyn de Mumbro, And they had a son named Elio. Elio was not a cosmic child. However, he was just a plain old normal kid. Because Joseph and Jocelyn, they were not They were not a cosmic couple. No, no. Joseph was meant to be with a 19-year-old Dominique Bellaton. Remember, at this point, Joseph is like 60-something. And he's not a good 60-something. He's a nasty 60-something. He's... He's just not a... He's just not a a nice-looking guy. At all. But anyway, Dominique Bellaton the 19-year-old that joseph de mumbro was having an affair with was originally brought to de mumbro by her parents because they were worried about her interest in boys and drugs you know the things that normal teenagers are interested in oh how that backfired de mumbro was immediately fond of this pretty little young girl and he said to her that she was a reincarnation of queen Hatsheput, and he spoiled her and made sure that she dressed in silk and that she had makeup, and that she was treated like a queen, and then he made her his chief mistress. And this is where things start getting interesting, juicy. Now Belaton fell pregnant with Demumbro's child, but Demumbro said that he had chosen her to give birth to the Avatar, the child that would lead the Cosmic Children to bring in the New Age. Because obviously, he's the one that's gonna create the most important child. He told the members that he didn't touch dominique and that the child was conceived by a miracle and what they did is they actually performed a rite of conception where the apparition of an ancient master named monotonous appeared surrounded by mist and ominous lights and he extended his sword and pointed it at belaton who was kneeling down in front of him in the crowd and a laser beam shot from the sword And as it touched her throat, a flash of light illuminated the sanctuary. And the Immaculate Conception was believed by the astonished congregation. Yup, sounds believable, doesn't it? (laughs) Laser beams, light shows, woo! Pew, pew, pew! I mean, I don't know how people actually sat in a room and looked at this and were like, yep, yep, that's real. That is definitely what happened in front of our eyes. Maybe they were drugged. Maybe there was a lot of drugs going on. Because that's the only way that I can see it being something that could be believable. I mean, I work in special effects and I know how much work it takes to make something look even remotely real and then it still needs to be edited even more and it's on a screen and there's technology and this is in like the 80s. So I don't understand how this worked, (laughs) but anyway... The truth was that Monatonus was actually Joseph de Mumbro's wife, Jocelyn, who was dressed in a cape and a mask, and Bellaton, Dominique, held a flashlight in her mouth that illuminated her throat when the sword was extended to point at her. Now, I just want to know, why was Jocelyn okay with doing this? Did she really believe that the pregnancy was immaculate, or was she just totally okay with her husband having an affair? I wouldn't be okay with that. I don't know why she would get in on this unless she truly believed what he was saying. But if she believed what he was saying, she wouldn't go through with it because it's all fake. I mean, she's the one who's making it fake. I don't... I I don't understand. I digress. During the birth between 20 and 21 March, the members held an all-night vigil to bring in the child. Yep. That's that's how you know they're going to be important. And when the child was born... Nobody was allowed to look at her for three months. I don't know. I mean, I'm of the opinion that, like, as a baby, when you've got all these faces staring at you, like, that's where you learn emotion and stuff. Like, even now, with all these masks over our faces, I have a feeling it's going to affect kids in a way that we don't even know, because faces are being covered up. And that's how you learn, like, smiling, and that's how you keep a baby calm, you goo goo ga all that kind of stuff. But anyway her placenta was buried under a red cape in the garden because that's super normal at least they didn't eat it and then every evening her turds were taken to be buried in the vegetable garden yup that was you heard me correctly they took her poops and they buried them in the vegetable garden where the people got their veggies that they ate some nice little baby manure baby flavored vegetables (laughs) it's nasty now the girl was named emmanuel she was the avatar as i said earlier and the other cosmic children were not allowed within a meter of her now imagine you've got this child and she wants to play with her friends but the friends are not allowed to go within a meter of this child that child is going to grow up feeling so lonely and confused and have really weird social skills I... Didn't. But... Dimambra claimed that because she was conceived by theogamy, she had only one blood in her veins, and therefore was fragile. She had to wear a helmet and gloves so that the purity of her aura was protected, and she wore a training halter to make sure that she never fell to the floor. I mean, I don't know. I was on the floor a lot. I ate dirt. And... i That's how you become a human... <sighs> Nobody was permitted to touch her besides her immediate family members, which I kind of get because I suppose you don't want strangers touching a child, but, you know, friends and stuff. Emanuela eh. was tutored by Nikki de Toy, the wife of Antonio de Toy that I mentioned earlier, and it was said that Emanuela was very intelligent. She could speak five languages, apparently. And she grew up believing that she had magic powers. So when she walked into a room and looked at a specific door and said open, it would open. Because DiMombro had a remote that would open specific doors. And, I mean, I get that. If if a child is brought up believing that they are magical and that they've got magic powers, then they're going to believe it. I mean, when I grew up, we had a car that, well, my mom got a new car. And this car had the electric windows, not the rolly uppy down windows. And she, there was also little like speaker thingies on the side on the back doors. And she said to me, "If you say open into the little speaker, the window will open. And if you say close, it will close." So I was like, "Oh, okay, cool, open." And little did I know, she was sitting in the front, just opening it from the driver's door, which, you know, you can do. And I was like, what? What is this? It is a magical car. And I would open, close, open, close, open, close. And eventually when she told me, like, listen, it's, it's me doing this. I mean, it took me a while. I didn't even catch on by myself, I don't think. I felt like a bit of a tool. I was like, ah, yes. Betrayal. This is what it feels like at such an early age. Thank you, mother. <laughs> the joys of growing up with a parent that likes to mess with you. Love you, Mom. Now, the group was so concerned with their purity that the members of the group wouldn't sit in a seat that somebody else had sat in because they didn't want to contaminate their own energy. And then they also wouldn't allow their kids to play with non-OTS kids for the same reason. So they were, like, causing a lot of segregation, but, I mean, they weren't causing trouble. They just were alienating themselves from the outside world. And when the OTS kids did play together, they had to wear gloves so that their energies would not be transmitted and mingled through their toys. It's a bit of like, it's a bit of a weird thing. It's it kind of feels like more, Jomophobia than anything else. But that's what they're into. So whatever. The group would do full moon ceremonies, and during these ceremonies, the members were instructed not to look at Lucieux in the eyes because he was, quote unquote, the Christ. One of the ex-members, Rosemary Klaus, remembers a bizarre tale that eight couples participated in sperm drinking for purification. She said, Jure would reduce our food rations. We lived almost exclusively on peanut butter and bread. <laughs> Girl, same. <laughs> because Jure had said that we must fast in order to survive the end of time. When a woman complained she was weak with hunger, we were told the sperm of the master will restore her lost strength. Ew. Oh, I wonder if he would, like, put it in a cup, if <laughs> they would take it like a shot, <laughs> or if he would just go straight from the straight from the main vein, uh, or if he had like a store of it, a reserve, then he would open a tap, <laughs> Ew. but now this is some other kind of power trip right here, I'm sorry, like, it's, it's, it's what is the word I'm looking for, it's just so infuriating, that this weak little man needs to feel somewhat powerful by tricking woman into drinking his sperm. But anyway, he would also apparently get woman to sleep with him before ceremonies to restore his energy. Power-hungry arsehole is what I'd say. According to some group members, traitors were and would be suitably punished for centuries to come. One member once said that after a disagreement with Jure, one of their family members was hit by a car the next day, and Jure said something sinister like, ah, I hope you've learned or something like that. It was a strange comment. Now, the group wasn't just situated in one geographic area. There were were a few communes between Switzerland and Canada. Um, They were relatively bothersome. Bothersome. They were relatively quiet and unbothersome to the outside world. They weren't like the people from Rajesh Param. Please watch Wild Wild Country. If you haven't, it's on Netflix. It's amazing. It's so good. They weren't like them. They didn't try to take over towns or anything. They were more of a exclusive group. Now, the troubles for them only really started when Rosemarie Klaus approached the press after she left the group. I quickly want to explain her story because it's funny. Well, not funny. It's just, it's interesting. Now, her and her husband, Bruno, they went to Luc in Switzerland because Bruno had an earache. And remember, Luke is a doctor. And Luke looked at his ear and he said that it wasn't just a plain earache. He had a terrible, terrible cancer. But... Bruno didn't have to worry because Luke cured it miraculously. Poof, it's gone. Cancer gone. And because of that, he liked to remind Bruno that he owed him his life. And Bruno took it seriously and became a devout follower. Rosemarie obviously joined Bruno in the OTS because she was a dedicated, loving wife. But, you know, she was never really as into it as Bruno was. They did, however, invest quite a lot of money to the group and they were relatively important to the leaders of the group. She did say, though, that if she had one foot in, one foot out. She wasn't really that into it, but she was there. And I think that they sensed that because one day, Bruno came home and announced to Rosemarie, quote, the masters have decided I'm going to live with another woman, unquote. <laughs> Just like that. Boom. Honey, I'm going to live with another woman. I hope it's okay. Bye. Now obviously this upset Rosemary. I think it would upset anyone. I mean, imagine your man or your woman comes in and they're like, okay, listen, uh, my boss has kind of said i got to go live with somebody else. I hope, I hope you keep well. It's like we've been married for 15 years or however long. <laughs> so she tried to go to Jure to fix the situation and his solution was to set her up with another man. She said it only lasted about six weeks because he was seeing other women and they were seeing other men and it was just one big mix-up and she didn't really, she wasn't into it. She was like, nah, not my vibe. She did not leave immediately though. She stuck around and tried to get her hubby back but she eventually gave up when she saw that he was way too deep and it wasn't going to happen. When she decided to leave, she was demanding her money back from when she had invested into the cult. And she took her story to Infosect, which is the cult monitoring group. But she would not tell them everything because she was also going to the court for her divorce. So she didn't want to, like, have it all exposed and then that backfire on her getting her settlement back. But anyway, by the end of 1992, she had completed her divorce and she got a settlement of $150,000 from the OTS. At this time in Canada, Luc Jure was replaced as the Grand Master. He was putting a lot more urgency into his apocalyptic messages and in the beginning it sort of started out being super weird and interesting and somewhat positive, but now it was getting kind of dark. Deep, dark, scary stuff. And the members really went that into it. So they replaced him as the Grand Master and this really hurt his ego. So he threw a little tantrum and he started a new group. Because that's what you do. You start a new group. <laughs> Onwards and upwards, I always say. This group had a long French name that I can't pronounce. But I can tell you that it was abbreviated as A-R-C-H-S. Arches. Or Arcs. Which is a play on words because he was obsessed with doorways and boats. Get it? Arch. arc. Some of the members that were part of the OTS joined Luke in the separate group. And by 1993, he had about 53 members in his little separate group, which was still sort of part of the other group, but not really. It's very confusing, and I couldn't really figure it out. But just know that there was a separate group, and now Luke was part of, well, he owned, he started this, but he was still part of the other one. So now, in 1992, one of Luke's close associates, his name was Jean-Pierre Vinet, asked another member, the one who spoke earlier, Herman, to get him a gun with a silencer. Now, when asked why, he said that he wanted it for self defense and that the silencer was so that he wouldn't wake the neighbors while he practiced. It all sounds very dodgy. But Herman was like a little puppy. He went to a couple of people he knew and eventually he was referred to a guy that could possibly have a gun for him. But little did he know that this man was a police informant. <laughs> Obviously, because the universe, that's how it works. but He said he would help Herman. He did also tell the cops. At the same time, round about the same time, the cops, they received a phone call from an unknown man who threatened to kill the minister of public security saying that he was going to assassinate him. So now the cops are like, whoa, hang on. We've got this. Like Our our informant just told us that these people who are part of a cult and they're wanting to buy guns. And now we've got this anonymous phone call where somebody is threatening to assassinate a minister so they were like this is suspicious. we want to get a warrant and they managed to get a warrant to tap into the group's phones and they managed to listen to their conversations and in march 1993 they when herman went to go buy the guns they performed a sting operation and he was arrested Vinay was arrested shortly after and a warrant was put out for Luc jure's arrest because he was in europe at the time Three days after these public arrests were made, Rosemary Klaus was on the front page of the tabloid Journal de Montréal, scowling and holding up a white cape and a red cross, filling all the tea on the group. She was pissed. She wanted more money and she wanted to just really destroy them. And this is, like I said, when it all started coming down, they've got these public arrests. They've for guns and possible terrorism they've got rosemary on the front of this thing and she's also gone to the police now with the different things that the group was doing and it was just a, it was now brewing into a little bit of a storm a storm in a teacup if you will now all this negative attention was devastating for the OTS this group that prides itself on secrecy and superiority even the judge said that the negative press was punishment enough, and what he did is he just made the men, the three men, pay $1,000 to the Red Cross Foundation and do a month of public service. Two days after the trials of Jure, Vinay and Delorme, the police in Quebec publicly announced an inquiry into the financial aspects of the OTS. There was also an inquiry in Australia because it was said that De Mumbro had made 293 million dollar transactions in Australia. Now, while this investigation was underway, the French authorities actually put the renewal of Jocelyn De Mumbro's passport on hold because they believed that there was possible money laundering, understandably. Now, the weird thing is this 93 million it there, I couldn't find anything more on it. Like they, they said that they found these weird transactions, they assumed it was fraudulent, and that was it. You know, this is obviously a lot for DeMumbro, because oh my goodness, they're on to us. They're well not they're on to us, they're they're coming after us for some reason. What is going on? Why why is all of this stuff happening at once? Because you know how life is. Things happen all at one time and there's nothing you can do about it. Some members also began to question DeMumbro's change in lifestyle and behaviour. While all of the group members lived humbly and, you know, they didn't live in opulence. <laughs> How does that thing on RuPaul's Drag Race go? Opulence. Anyway, they, did, they all lived humbly in the, in the early years, but Dimambro, he kept living in increasing opulence. So he would travel first class, he owned several luxurious homes, and he also no longer participated in the daily tasks that he once had, like the poop burials. (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, Some members even noted a change in his attitude towards them, where once he had been tolerant and open to criticism, he now was authoritarian and demanding unconditional obedience. He was suspicious of his competitors, and certain members felt that he was trying to divide them in an effort to increase his control, which I wouldn't be surprised if that's exactly what he was doing. In the early 90s, these criticisms actually led to a drop in membership and financial contributions. And the group's revenue dropped from 483,683 Swiss francs in 1991 to 89,000 Swiss francs in 1993. That's a massive drop. That's huge. It's almost 400,000 Swiss francs back then. That's that's a lot of money per year. They could have probably gotten through these issues. But, Demambro was having health problems, his kidneys had problems, he had become incontinent, and he had developed cancer. On top of that, his little cosmic child, Emanuela, was starting to grow up and become a teenager, and in his eyes, she was unmanageable. He also said that he felt the group was under international surveillance. So he felt the group was under international surveillance. We don't know when they might close the trap on us. A few days? A few weeks? We are being followed and spied upon in our every move. All the cars are equipped with tracing and listening devices. All of their most sophisticated techniques are being used on us. While in the house, beware of surveillance cameras, lasers, and infrared. Our file is the hottest on the planet, the most important of the last 10 years, if not of the century. However that may be, as it turns out, the concentration of hate against us will give us energy to leave, Now, I mean, the way that he he said this, it kind of, it it feels like he's got this inflated sense of ego. It's like, we are the most important that they have ever seen. It's like, you're a tiny little group. You're... A tiny little group of people who thinks that they're more important than they really are. Like, CIA, they're coming for us. Oh no! It's almost like he was paranoid. In the early 1990s, the concept of transit was introduced into the group. This term was used to describe the voluntary departure of members to another planet in order to create a new world. While the method of transport between the planets was still unknown to DeMumbro, he described the transit as a passage across a mirror or travel in a spaceship, which sounds awfully similar to that other cult, what's it called, Heaven's Gate, Spaceship, Souls, Vessels, what? When members asked Mumbro what the transit meant, he spoke in terms of returning to the Father. Okay. Daddy, we're coming home! <laughs> now, over time, the concept of transit of the transit changed. In a statement, one member explained that transit was initially conceived as a change of consciousness. In the 1990s, however, changing consciousness was conceived as requiring preparation for transfer to another universe. He explained to certain members that one day they would be called to a meeting to accomplish this transit, and he told them to be on 24-hour alert. But six months before their departure, their transit the tragic events in Waco, which is another cult that I will cover, I promise. They stole their thunder. During its investigation of the OTS, the police found an audio cassette of a conversation between Demumbro and Jeray on the Waco events. Here is an excerpt of that conversation. Just so you know, the first person that's speaking is Demumbro. the second person is Luke, the third person is Demumbro again. Because it, it's weird. So it goes like this.
1: People have beaten us to the punch, you know. Well, yeah. We could beat us to the punch. In my opinion, we should have gone six months before them. What we'll do will be even more spectacular.
0: On October 3rd, 1994, Dimambro gave 300 envelopes to a Swiss member to mail on October 7th, 1994, to various locations around the world. These envelopes contained OTS texts, a copy of a letter addressed to the French Minister of the Interior, and a videotape now this is where the group becomes truly infamous but this is also where i'm going to end this episode the first transit happens there is a mass amount of death a lot of fire and i will do the second episode very soon i promise but i hope that you enjoyed this one and please listen to the second one because i promise you it gets so much more interesting the things that these people did it's terrifying actually i mean if you it's just you'll see when you listen to the second episode yay me look at me doing a two-parter so fancy such a such a podcaster (laughs) anyway i hope that you guys keep it real and come back For the second episode. Bye. Ciao. Goodbye.